Thank you, Bob. <coughs> My name is Bert. I'm an alcoholic, <coughs> and I be, belong to the Durham Center Group. <coughs> and uh, it's a great pleasure, privilege to be here. <coughs> Isn't AA wonderful? <coughs> Bart. <coughs> Where else would Barclay and Anne be able to enjoy their insanity? <laughs> nice to meet you, Barclay. <clears throat> but I too have enjoyed Bob's company <clears throat> in the last few days. He has been a, been a marvelous host. <clears throat> this is really my first visit as such to Nashville. Um, you probably have already gathered that I'm not local. <laughs> and when <clears throat> my sister heard that I was moving to the south to North Carolina, she whipped out her map and said, Oh, great, that's one day's drive from Nashville, because my sister is a big country and western fan. And in fact, the very first summer I was here, she came down, borrowed my car, and invited me to come with her, but I told her I was busy. <coughs> she came anyway. She was with me a few weeks ago in California again. We were out there for my son's graduation. <coughs> and we're staying in the Marriott in close to Berkeley, where he was graduating from. And I stepped in, and the place was overrun with people doing, what kind of dancing is it? Uh, uh, square dancing, square dancing, yeah. She's also a great, my sister is also a great square dancing enthusiast. In fact, they gave her a badge so she could go in, and uh, I, it seems to me I'm, uh, I, I, I am doomed to be hounded by square dance people because, because <laughs> I discovered that that man is the president of the square dance society. Uh, but it's good to be here, very good to be here. I was in a neighboring state not too long ago. And there are lots of friends here from Owensboro, where I had the great privilege of being at a convention in February. Scott was my uh, uh, host on that occasion. And maybe there the people from Owensboro did not know that I was going to be speaking, and uh, you probably didn't expect to hear me again. If you feel like leaving, that's okay. I, I won't take offense. <laughs> So you can leave the meeting if you want. <coughs> the rest of us will know that you're not working the program right, but that's another matter. <coughs> but I've been very privileged to travel around and these various places. When I was in Owensboro, Scott introduced me to sheep barbecue. I never knew that there was such a thing. <laughs> and uh, two days ago, Bob took me out to Pancake Pantry. 
I like to eat, as you can see. And wherever I go, I like to experiment with what's new. As the people in Orangeburg know, I was going to spend the month of April in China. And I did. And I ate many things there. I'm not sure what they all were. <laughs> but I've found out better not to, uh, not to ask. Ever since the, my first visit to Spain some years ago, uh, I was staying in Madrid. And it was on a Sunday, and I usually, when I'm in a situation like this, I look around and see what other people are eating, and if it doesn't look like I've eaten it, I order it. That's the sort of person I am. And so I saw this interesting dish going by, and so I ordered it. And the waiter said, no, sir, I'm sorry, you can't have that. <laughs> you have to order that the week before. And I said, oh, how come? <laughs> he said, Sir, uh, those are testicles. <laughs> you can only get those after the bullfight. <laughs> well, I'm from a poor family. I eat anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to be here next Sunday, so can I place my order now? And he said, sure. So next Sunday I came back. And I said, I'm here for my order. And he said, fine, I'll bring it right over. So he brought it over. And it looked pretty much the same as it did the week before, except the portions were much smaller. <laughs> I figured they must have had a lot of people uh, to serve, so they decided to cut down on the portions. <laughs> and I figured they'd cut down on the price. But no, the bill was the exact same thing. And, uh, you know, I'm usually a peaceful type person, but I, I got curious. I said, you know, you just think I'm a rich American. You're just ripping me off. And he said, oh, no, sir, you must understand that in the case of a bullfight, the bull sometimes wins. <laughs> So I have found out best not to ask what you're eating when you're in foreign countries. <clears throat> the story I have to share with you today will have no arrest, no throwing into jail, no loss of jobs, no arrest for drunken driving, no cases of ever going to a party where I couldn't drive myself home. But what I hope to share with you is the Teddy descent into a situation where alcohol started to control my life completely. And I would like to start at what has thus far been the end 
for me, my last drunk. And I hope it stays my last drunk. It was on a Wednesday, and I was then teaching at a university in Canada, and I came to in my office, realizing that I was too drunk to teach my classes. And so I canceled them. And that was the first time that this was to happen to me. And I was worried. And when an alcoholic is worried, what does he do? He drinks some more. By which time you gathered that I am a professor. Or rather, I should say I was until I retired a few years ago. Uh, in case you're wondering, I'm 64 years old and Kenny over there looked at me yesterday and he said, gosh, you don't look it. And isn't he a brilliant, intelligent young man? <laughs> well, I was a professor of chemistry. And so in my laboratory at all times, I had at least 35 gallons of pure alcohol, courtesy of the Canadian taxpayers. So I took some of that alcohol home with me, and I proceeded to get drunk and stay drunk. My wife would come in every day. She would see me where she left me that morning. And finally, on the Friday, she said to me, look, this has gone on long enough. I'm going to call Alcoholics Anonymous. And she placed a phone call as a result of which next morning, Keith drove up into the farmhouse which I had rented. He said, I am an alcoholic. And he didn't look like an alcoholic to me. He was driving a brand new Buick. He was dressed in a natty sports coat. He told me he was the president of the Chamber of Commerce. He sat down and he played my piano which my hands had been shaking so badly that I couldn't play at all. And he said, tomorrow morning I'm coming to take you to go and meet some other alcoholics. And so on the Sunday morning, I got up early and I took some pills because I didn't want these alcoholics to think I was one of them. <laughs> I took a lot of pills. I took a lot of pills because I had a lot of pills. <laughs> they had been given to me by my doctor. My doctor thought that alcoholism was a form of valium deficiency. And so whenever I showed up, he gave me some more. And so off I went to Preston's Scout House where I heard a man speak who failed to impress me. <laughs> he had been on Skid Row in Toronto. He had bummed off Young Street. He had panhandled. He had slept in boxcars. And I said, what does he have in common with me? 
she has been to all these dreadful places I have never even been to a hospital. By five o'clock I had fixed that. <laughs> because I had completely forgotten about the pills and I left the meeting and went straight back to my lab and got into the lab alcohol again. Forgetting about the value in my stomach, you see. And the next thing I knew is that I woke up in the hospital with bright lights shining on me. And there was my wife. I said, what happened? She said, <laughs> and in the following week, all of those people who I had forgotten about, who I had met at that meeting in person, Scout House, came and they spoke to me and they bothered me and I asked them to leave and they stayed. <laughs> they said to me, Bert, at the end of the week there is going to be a meeting, a convention in London, Ontario, the 16th Western Ontario Convention. Why don't you go? And so I got out of hospital on Friday. I got into my car on Saturday and I drove the 65 miles all alone to London, Ontario, to the 16th Convention. And what I saw, I could not believe. I saw 1,500 people laughing, happy, joyous. And what they told me makes it possible for me to say to you that that last drink of lab alcohol that I had on October the 13th, 1968, is the last time I have found it necessary to drink or to take value. And if you don't believe it, I believe that that is a miracle. Because, you see, I promised my wife faithfully that I would not drink for a month and I did not make it. And I come here, you people talk to me, I listen a little bit, I do some of the things, some of the things you tell me. And I'm looking at 30 years of sobriety, I just can't believe it. I was born in Jamaica. And I can overcome and leave that part of my sobriety out of my story completely. It really had nothing to do with my drinking. I grew up in a family where there was very little drinking. It was a very good family. My parents were school teachers. My dad was a diabetic. He didn't have drink. It was, there was very little, little abuse. It was a loving family. <laughs> I left to go to Canada at age 22 to enter university. I went to Queen's University, which is located halfway between Toronto and Montreal, 
and I decided to major in chemistry, even though I had not done chemistry before. And I was able to complete the course in three years, and I won several scholarships. I won one to stay on there to do graduate work. And I was able to do all of that time. I was able to do that while maintaining a very active career in music. I used to be the assistant organist at the Anglican Cathedral in Kingston, Ontario, which meant I had to be ready and available to play at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning. Well, all of this money I was making from playing and all of this scholarship money must have got to my head. Because, you know, we alcoholics cannot stand for prosperity. And so I took it upon myself to buy one bottle of booze per week. And I believe that that is where my problem started. That one bottle of booze per week. Because it was my habit. When I came home at night from the lab to pour myself a drink, that would get me nice and relaxed and I would go off to sleep. I say that is where my problems began because in a very short time I was to see that one drink per night grow into something more like one bottle per night. And the effect now was that I was so relaxed that I was relaxed the following morning. But I was young, and I was strong, and it didn't seem to give me any trouble. I won another scholarship. This one took me to Western Canada. <clears throat> Western and Northern Canada to the city called Edmonton. Way up north, way out west, way up in the mountains. I arrived there in August, and by October, the temperature had dropped to 35 degrees below zero. And I said to myself, Bert, this is no place for a boy from the Caribbean. <laughs> and so I decided that I would get out of there as quickly as I could. I got out of there more quickly than I should, but yet again, not because of booze. I worked hard. It's easy to work hard when it's nine months of winter and you don't skate and you don't ski. There's nothing else to do. It's dark at eight in the mornings in the winter. It's dark at four in the afternoon. There's nothing to do but work. And I work a lot. And my professor said, we won't tell anybody you're leaving. I left three months before I was supposed to, because I'd finished the work. <laughs> but in the three months left, in the three years, less two months, that I spent in Edmonton, Ontario, in Edmonton, Alberta, pardon me, a number of things were to change, and most of them had to do with that one drink per night. Now, there may a night when I would be in the lab working, 
and it will just come into my head just like that. How much booze was in the glass from the night before? How much booze was left last night? And you know, I couldn't think. I said, well, it's best not to take any chances. I would put everything down, take my lab coat off, get in my car, 35 degrees below zero, drive down to the liquor store, buy a bottle, put it in the back of the trunk and come back to work. You see, I didn't need to drink from it. But I needed to know that it was there. I needed that assurance. And I can remember again in Edmonton going into my basement apartment for lunch, turning the radio on, and hearing this guy said, I am an expert on alcoholism. And I can tell you that if any time of the day or night your body requires a drink, you are an alcoholic. And I was wounded by those words because that is not what I had heard. I had heard that if you take a drink in the morning, you're an alcoholic. You see, that's what I heard, and I followed that as best I could. In fact, there are many mornings I would wake up, and there would be some booze left over in the glass from the night before, and I did not drink it. Because, you see, I, I knew what the risks were. <laughs> Mind you, I didn't throw it away either. <laughs> we are sick people. We're not stupid people. I wasn't into throwing our booze, you see. I poured it back in the bottle. <laughs> and I said to that man, look, mister, if at any time of the day or night I have a problem with booze, I will quit by the exercise of willpower. And for those of you over there who are laughing, let me tell you that in 1963, I had good evidence that I had willpower, and I always apologize at this point of my talk, because I know I may rob some raw nerves. You see, in 1963, I used to smoke between two and three packs of cigarettes a day. And that was the first time I read of the evidence in the British newspaper, in the British magazines about the link between smoking and lung cancer. I believed it, and somebody bet me that I couldn't stop, and I said, I'll show you, I'll stop for a week. That was July the 31st, 1963, and I have not smoked since. So I knew I had willpower, and I figured that if by some remote chance I needed to quit drinking, remote chance, <laughs> I would use that same willpower. Today, I know a little bit more about our disease than I did then. And I'd like to share some of it with you 
because there are some people who may find it useful. <clears throat> you see, because one of the things that has always been unknown and puzzling to scientists is what it is in booze that causes addiction. You see, scientists have very good theories about what causes addiction with a molecule that you have in coffee or the molecules in tobacco smoke or the molecules in heroin. Those are known. The, the mechanism of their causing addiction is known. But there is nothing in the chemical called ethyl alcohol that ought to cause addiction. And so that has been a long puzzle for scientists. Well, in the early 1970s, Dr. Virginia Davies, a biochemist at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, decided to do some experiments on this. And the typical way they do these experiments, as you probably know now from reading the newspaper, is take a bunch of rats and divide it up into two. Now, I don't want you to, to think that these are, you know, your ordinary rats. I mean, these, these, are, these are expensive rats, you know, well-bred rats, uh, carefully bred. Ten dollars each for a rat. <laughs> uh, anyway, she divided these rats into two and fed one half of them booze until they became addicted to it. As a point of interest, she really has to force feed them. Because if you give the rats a chance, they won't take it. So you have to really shove it down their neck. It's not like us. You have to shove it down their neck. And, uh, 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 and once she got them addicted, she was able to look at their chemistry, the addicted set, and the straight set over here. And she found out that in the case of the, of the healthy rats, when they take alcohol into their system, the alcohol travels through the body, goes to the liver, where it is broken down into bits and pieces, and uh, the bits and pieces are uh, excreted from the system. The body also breaks down other stuff. It breaks down proteins. The proteins go to the liver, are broken down, and pass out the system. So in the case of the healthy rat, you have two parallel streams, one from the alcohol, one from the protein, coming to the liver, being broken down, and passing out. In the case of the alcoholic rats, however, she discovered that a change had taken place in their body chemistry. So that the breakdown product from the alcohol stream and the protein stream, instead of passing out of the system, these were combining into a substance that was being retained in the body. And so what she did was to isolate, uh, sorry, was to <laughs> sacrifice, as she puts it, these rats and isolate from their livers this material, this compound, which was being formed and classified it. And she found that it belongs to the same family of chemicals as does morphine, codeine, and heroin. It's an opiate substance. It's an opiate narcotic. It turns out that it was actually a known compound. It had been previously isolated from plants. Its name, if you like to think, to remember it, is tetrahydropapyrrolene. And it is her theory that when the 
alcoholic drank, their body chemistry had changed so much that their body manufactured this substance and that it is this opiate narcotic that is responsible for the addiction which you and I know so well. I think that's a fine theory. The only problem with it is that she produced it in 1970 and I needed it in 1963. <laughs> so I had no option but to keep on drinking. <laughs> I got married in 1963. <clears throat> and that had nothing to do with my drinking. Although <laughs> that's not what I said. When I came in the program and I used to hear the old timers talk about how they used to bash the women folk and beat them up, I used to say, oh my goodness, how disgusting. And I thought I was a cut above them because I never abused my wife nor my children. I didn't hit my, my, I, 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 I was not a, a physically abusive drunk. And so I thought I was a cut above them. Until, you know, some of the old timers in their inimitable way that they could teach you honestly. Like <laughs> Leander John Joseph Gunter, the town drunk of Waterloo, where I got my sobriety. Fifteen years he had when I came in. He used to sleep under the, the bridge. He doesn't anymore. He didn't. He and I used to go to meetings all the time. And I learned wisdom from him. And I learned some honesty. And then I realized that what I never used to do to my wife with my fist, I used to do with my tongue. Because when she looked at me and said, out of her love and out of her concern, don't you see what is happening to you, Bert? You're becoming an alcoholic. I would turn upon her and I said, who would not be an alcoholic being married to you? I hope you remember who I told you made the phone call to Alcoholics Anonymous that brought Keith to my door nearly 30 years ago. It was a lie, and I'm grateful that he is still here. Unfortunately, she could not make this trip with me this weekend. But I won another scholarship. And this one took me to England. And it is in England that my alcoholism 
really became, came into its own. And I don't understand why, because booze in England is so expensive. <clears throat> of course, it's not expensive if you drink the way English people drink. Many of you have been over there when you were practicing, you know, and they have this pale brown ale and Watney's and Stout uh, and uh, Strong Ale. But don't, I didn't much like beer. In fact, I only drank beer in an emergency. <laughs> I like hard liquor. I like hard liquor. And hard liquor in England was expensive. But, you know, frankly, economics was not a problem. I was on a lucrative Canadian scholarship that when I converted my Canadian dollars into English pounds, I was one of the best paid people at Imperial College of Science and Technology. So money was not the problem. I tell you what was. What was the problem for Bert was that I had been given a tremendous opportunity to go to England at the Canadian government's expense to study with one of the world's greatest scientists. The man is a Nobel Prize winner. Now you know that when he agreed to take me into his lab, you know who was doing who the favor. He was doing me a favor. But what am I doing? Well, I'm not getting into the lab much before 10.30. Because the pub didn't open till 10. And then I had to leave at 2.30 because the pubs closed at 3. Then I would finally leave work at 7.30 at night because the pubs opened at 7. My whole life was now being organized around the availability of booze. If I wasn't drinking it, I was recovering from it, or I was planning it. One day I passed out in the laboratory, in the laboratory, pardon me, for five hours in the toilet. Luckily they never had very good security. Oh, they have found me. I was able to make my amends to him. I told him, after I'd been nine years sober, about what I had done, and he said, well, you fooled me completely. I thought you were doing a great job. <laughs> but I was worried. Alcohol was taking over my life. We lived in this delightful old English mansion that had been converted into apartments. And it was an alcoholic paradise. There were places where I could hide my booze, holes and nooks and crannies. Who am I hiding my booze from? By that time we had had a girl born to us, but she was mostly interested in milk. My wife hardly drank. But here I am hiding to drink 
this morning, having my morning drink, when I heard the hearing behind me, Bert, why are you drinking in the morning now? Did you hear what I just said? The morning? Just wind it back a minute, please, to Edmonton. Remember that radio show? When I was listening to the guy say, you know, you're an alcoholic anytime you need it. And I said, no, no, no. It's only in the mornings. Remember that? Remember that? In Edmonton, I was saying, if you're an, you're an alcoholic, if you drink in the morning. Now in London, a few months later, I'm drinking in the morning. You think a bell would have gone off, wouldn't you? But that's not the way we are. We just change the rules. We just change the rules. And so what did I do to my wife? I told to my wife the same thing you said to your spouse. Remember when you were confronted by your spouse about your drinking? Remember how you put him or her at ease? Oh, yes. That's what I did to my spouse, my wife. Oh, you get excited so easily. Oh, my goodness. You worry too much. I have this thing under control. I did not know that when I told my wife that I had my drinking under control, I was taking the first step. I was admitting that I was powerless over alcohol. Because, in fact, as Frank said last night, the only person who has anything to control with regard to booze is an alcoholic. The social drinkers have nothing to control. You heard Bob Frank talk about it last. And you and I don't understand this. And how can we understand it because social drinkers are strange people? <laughs> strange people, you know. My wife is one of them. We'll go to a restaurant and some guy comes up and what will you have? Oh, can we have white wine or red wine? Well, if it's that much of a problem, why not have both? <laughs> and what are you going to do with one glass of wine anyway? Strange people. Stra you offer them a drink, they say, no, thank you. Strange people. Strange people. So let me tell you how much control I exercise. <clears throat> we were planning for a camping, six-week camping holiday throughout Europe. And I had this little English car all equipped with stuff for the baby and everything. We're going to take the baby. And, you know, we're going to head for Italy anyway. And all I can tell you uh, is that if you're ever going to go camping in Italy, and if you don't have a baby, borrow one. <laughs> as soon as I, I push that car right over the Alps into Italy, because I had been told that the expensive part of the wine in Italy 
worthy bottles. I took some bottles with me. And I had them filled up at the corner stores for 35 cents. And I said to my wife, you know, can you believe this? This good red Yankee for 35 cents. Just imagine that. <laughs> In Canada, it would have cost something more like $3.50. Do you see how much money I am saving? <laughs> and I saved money before breakfast, after breakfast, during breakfast. I stopped on the highway to save money because I couldn't get enough of this good Red Chianti into me, good Red Chianti. Hell, by that time, I had already started to drink of alcohol. The stop after Italy was Greece. And I know that as we were driving through the streets, the streets are practically empty. If you have been to Athens recently, you know that's virtually impossible. But the streets are virtually empty because they had overthrown one of their governments. And so I had the streets to myself. And as I was driving along, I saw men drinking stuff which looked just like that. And I said, I can't believe it, grown men sitting around in the middle of the day drinking water. <laughs> Until we met this Greek lady, and what she said to me was not Greek. <laughs> it wasn't Greek to me. <laughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> it was English to me. She said, no, no, no. It's not water. It's the Greek drink Uzo. And if you drink too much of it, it will make you blind. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm a scientist. <laughs> I know what in there made you blind. <laughs> it's called methyl alcohol or wood alcohol or wood hydrate, whatever. Methyl hydrate. I know how it makes you blind. <laughs> it doesn't have to wait till it gets into your stomach to enter your blood system. It can enter your blood system right through the cheek. Then it's taken from there to the liver, which we talked about, the big garbage disposal system of the body, where it is broken down into something called formaldehyde, known more commonly as embalming fluid. <clears throat> And that is taken through the bloodstream up to the eye where it attacks the optic nerve irreversibly. Oh, I knew that. But I got thirsty. <laughs> and you know, maybe I said, Oh, it may hurt the Greeks, but it shouldn't hurt the West Indian. <laughs> that word sanity is in the second set for a reason. <laughs> the second year we were spending in England, we had a fabulous opportunity to go to the Soviet Union. Now, this is in 1965. So at that time, it was still Iron Curtain. At that time, the Russians were ahead of the United States in space. Thirty of us university students were selected to go. 
And as soon as I got off the train in Moscow, I picked up Chuck. He was an exchange student from Minnesota. And Chuck and I soon found the best way to save money in Moscow. <laughs> My wife had other ideas. She wanted to go see the space exhibit. They were free and they were encouraging us to go. I saw her cry. And I knew why. Shortly after that, we returned to Canada. Me to my job at the University of Waterloo, a place which is probably responsible for some of you being here, since it is the birthplace of the Seagram's Distillery. <laughs> And I wanted to do well, don't we all? We all want to do well. I've heard people speak at AA meetings and said they didn't know what was wrong with them. That it was normal to have blackouts, it was normal to do this. I do not have that excuse. Excuse me. I knew that alcohol was destroying my life in every single department. I knew that. What I could do about it. I did many things. I changed brands. I thought it would help. I made my own. It, of course, made no difference. But the thing which ate at me most was not the hangover. It was the drunkard's hour. Don Klain now dead and gone, who was one of my early mentors, used to speak of two and three in the morning as the drunkard's hour. I think I could have lived for another 50 years with the physical defects of the disease. The pounding heart, the palpitating head, the dry heaves, the dry skin. But long before those physical defects took their toll on me, I think I would have probably done myself in because of the remorse. I don't care about the remorse quite as much as I did when I came into the program. And that's funny. Because I think that if there is anything that keeps me in this program, it is that I don't want to face the remorse of two and three in the morning again. The remorse of knowing that you have let your wife down, your children down, but far worse than all, 
the remorse of knowing that I have let myself down. I started to do things that I would be appalled at doing. I would like to tell you about the Friday night when my wife was pregnant with our second child and she came home and said, Bert, there are problems. And the doctor wants me in the hospital right away. And I said to her, well, look, you get your things together. I just have to go down to the lab to turn an experiment off. Scientists always have experiments to turn on or off. That night, my experiment was at the liquor store. I bought a whole bunch of booze, put it in the trunk of the car, came back, took her to the hospital. And I said to her, now you, you, you take it easy. And I went home. Now you know we alcoholics, we are compassionate people. And when we have a loved one in hospital about to face major surgery, our compassion knows no bounds. And so I thought about my poor wife in the hospital. And I opened the bottle and started to worry. And I worried as long and as hard as I could that night. And as soon as I surfaced next morning, I continued to worry some more. My poor wife, I worried. Something must be wrong. And then the phone rang. And it was the doctor. He said, I'm happy to tell you that your wife is fine. She has given birth to a little boy, a brother to your daughter. And both the little boy and your wife are just fine. And only an alcoholic in this room will understand the burden that was lifted from my poor shoulders. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> I could now celebrate. <laughs> and I celebrated so intensely for the next week that I forgot to pick them up in the... <laughs> In those days, you had to stay weak. <laughs> and when my wife came home, she said, what's been going on? I said, I have been celebrating. She said, you call this a celebration? And if only she knew the truth. Because the fact is that I was trying to celebrate. I don't know about you. But when I was 17 and 18, me and the boys could go out, we could have a few drinks, and a good time was had by all. And that was what I was trying to capture at the age of six, uh, 33. And it didn't work. How had alcohol transformed what should have been a wondrous experience for my wife and me into this? The tears on her face were not tears of joy. I heard her say, 
that she regretted the birth of our son under these conditions. She said to me, why did you come in the hospital drunk? The hospital where she was assistant director of nursing. I said, I did not mean to. <laughs> she said, if you did not mean to, why did you do it? And I did not know what to say to her. But if you had been there, you'd have known what to say. You'd have said to her, it just happened. It just happened. Because the alcoholic does not have to make a resolution that he is going to do something stupid. All he needs to do is to take a drink and it just happens. <laughs> the man took a drink and the drink took the man. I have said earlier that we are sick people. We are not stupid people. I would like to add that we are sick people. We are not mean people. Sickness comes from weakness. Meanness comes from strength. We are not mean people. And that's why I cannot fear the remorse. I cannot live with myself when I've done something mean. Because it is not with me. Last night Frank talked about the healing value of laughter in this program. Oh yes, how important is that laughter? When you laugh, I know that you have forgiven me but more importantly, when I laugh, I know that I have forgiven myself. And until I learn how to forgive myself to the newcomer in this program, the healing of this program cannot begin. We must learn that yesterday is but a dream. I have told you how I ended up at my at that convention in London, Ontario, and the people there said to me, Bert, if you want what we have, here are these 12 steps. You but try to practice these 12 steps in your affairs. And I said to them, oh good, give them to me here. <laughs> and I looked them over and I couldn't find the one I wanted. (coughs) 
I figured that one would deal with the hangover. I said, searching and fearless, moral, admitted exactly to people we had harmed. Make a mess. What does all that have to do with it? Amends? It was three years that I found out what amends were all about. I was three years sober, and I was sick with the flu. I was lying on the couch, and my daughter, she was then six years old, she was three years old, and I came into the program. She came up to me and said, Daddy, what's the matter? I said, oh, they are not well at all. I think I have the flu. And she walked very, very uncertainly out the room. And when she got the door, she turned around and she said, Daddy, I hope you're not going to be sick again like that time when the ambulance had to come to get me. Three years had passed. I didn't even know that she had seen me being carted off in the ambulance. I thought my wife had left her, you know, with the neighbors or something. For three years, that child had been plagued and bothered by the image of her dad being carted away in an ambulance with the lights flashing and everything. And I asked, what does a man have to do with it? Today, when she hears me speak, she says, you know, Daddy, I don't remember that. <laughs> and I said, darling, I'm glad you don't. It has left her with no great mark. I'm happy to tell you that she's planning to present us with our first grandchildren in October. <laughs> And you heard me right. I said grandchildren, because there are two of them. <laughs> One of each. Handsome, not handsome enough. We don't even know why. I know I hated myself because why else did I try to drink myself into oblivion every night if I never hated myself? Why would I drink because I want you to like me? There's a young man in our program who I'm working with. This young man is a medical student. And he's in there smoking crack. 
I'm living with prostitutes. And I said, where'd you get the cloth? He said, well, I, I bought it. The prostitute wanted it. I bought it because I wanted her to love me. I said, come again? <laughs> he wanted the prostitute to love him. And so we, maybe it was a prostitute. Why was I ingratiating myself, getting drunk to people I care nothing about? Except that I hated myself. Why is he doing that, that young medical student? Isn't it because he hates himself? Well, Alcoholics Anonymous does not promise to make you tall if you were not tall before. What it does promise is there are these 12 steps, and if you but try to practice these 12 steps in your, own, in, in your life, you will come to the understanding of a God, a God of your own understanding, who will grant you the serenity to accept the things you cannot change, the courage to change the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is what the program promises. And maybe in order to get that wisdom, you need, for example, to go to see a bank manager if you're having financial problems. A marriage counselor. Maybe you need to go to see a psychiatrist. But get sober first. I went to see a psychiatrist when I was drunk and paid the man $50 an hour to tell him a bunch of lies. And that's crazy, because some of my friends from Jamaica would listen to me tell lies for only $5. <laughs> Get sober first. And there are people who will not know what it is that you and I are seeking in this room this afternoon. And I am not talking about the alcoholics, you know. I am talking about the normal people. I am talking about the people whose lives are as unhappy and as discontented and as confused as ours was, how lucky are you and I that when we came to that moment of truth, when I woke up in that hospital, when your wife kicked you out, when the judge sentenced you, when your boss fired you, when we came to that moment of truth and we said, I need help. How lucky are you and I that there were those doors through which we could walk. There were these 12 steps that we could use to restructure our lives. And there was that big book that we could read to gain wisdom. How lucky are you and I? Because there are people out there who need it as much as I do. We see them at work. We are their relatives. We are married to them. They are our children. Of whom we could say, if only he would get drunk. 
I would know where to take her. We are fortunate people. We are indeed fortunate people. And I come back to this program as my host, Bob, 20 years in the program. We come back to this program day after day after all these years because of something I heard very early in the program, very early in my sobriety. When the alcoholic puts the cork in the bottle, he no longer has a drinking problem. He has a thinking problem. And if you're going to live, you're going to think. My sponsor gave me a book, The Twelve Steps, Seven Years Later, and the it abounds in wisdom. For example, it starts out that I now know that it is not only alcohol that I am powerless over. And so, today I use this program in every aspect of my life. Since retiring, I've started my own little research outfit and my business. And I need it there. In fact, my, I, I tell my partner, uh, now I can't worry. You see, I've got to run this business one day at a time. So if things are bothering you, you worry about it. I am going to run this business one day at a time. And he understands it because his mother is an AA too. <laughs> We are blessed people. My sponsor told me that things would happen to me in this program that exceeded my wildest expectations, and that is true. As you gather uh, from what I've said, I've been privileged and blessed to travel extensively all over the world on many occasions. I leave for two weeks on Monday night, for two weeks in Europe. My little business that I was telling you about has been given a contract by the World Health Organization to help develop a vaccine against malaria in collaboration with people in Australia. Thank you. In collaboration with people in Australia and in Pakistan. And that's a tremendous sense of value to me. In case uh, Bob was a little bit surprised, so I will tell you, in case you don't know it, that malaria is the world's greatest killer. It kills one person every 12 seconds. It kills four out of five infants in Africa. And of course, you can't use drugs because they can't afford drugs, so you have to use a vaccination. But that's, a, that's another matter. <laughs> If anybody had told me 30 years ago when I was planning my great career and having a drink before I passed out, if anybody had told me that I would get money from the World Health, I would have said I would not believe it. So my sponsor is right. And those are wonderful things that have happened to me and I'm very grateful to it. 
But I also mentioned to you that two weeks ago, three weeks ago about, we were in California for my son's graduation from Berkeley. And at the end of it, some of his classmates, he was doing an MBA, came up to him and said, you know, sir, I've got to meet you because your son tells us all this thing why he has to work so hard because of the standards you set for him. That was the boy I left in the hospital. And he has never seen me drunk. And I'm grateful that he has never seen me drunk. And that he and I today are very good friends. And I will say one last thing about this. At any age or stage, when we come into this program, we owe a special debt of gratitude to AA. But those of us who come in when our children are still young and impressionable have a double debt of gratitude to this program. We are driven people. We know nothing about that slogan either does it. Because our motto is, if anything is worthwhile doing, it's worthwhile doing to excess. That's why we have so much in common. Therefore, as we walk our common road to recovery in this program, it is well we remember the words of the Indiana poet Max Ehrman. I do not know if Max was an alcoholic. If he wasn't, he must have had good friends who were, because these words were certainly written for the ears of alcoholics. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe no less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should, therefore be at peace with God, What? ever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labors or aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace with your soul. For with all its time drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Try to be happy. One day at a time.
Burke, on behalf of Music City Roundup, this, uh, this small gift is but a symbol of our gratitude, and we really appreciate that message. It was powerful. I loved it, and I know everybody here has also. I think uh, probably we should clear after the uh, after we say the Lord's prayer. If you would, let's stand, hold hands, and say the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 